Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. At Enduring Interest, we are in the midst of our second series of podcasts, this one on liberal education. Previous episodes in this series have been on Leo Strauss and Hannah Arendt. Michael Oakeshott's collection, The Voice of Liberal Learning, will be the subject of next month's release. Today, we're discussing Eva Braun's book, Paradoxes of Education in a Republic, first published in 1979. Our guest is Pavlos Papadopoulos. He is assistant professor of humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, where he teaches great book seminars on politics, literature, and history. He received his BA from St. John's College in Annapolis and his MA and PhD in politics from the University of Dallas. Pavlos has a long-standing interest in the history of liberal arts education, especially the revival of liberal education in America that began in the early 20th century. It was while pursuing this interest that he first read and later taught Eva Braun's Paradoxes of Education in a Republic. Pavlos's writings have appeared in venues including Interpretation, First Things, Law and Liberty, The American Mind, and The American Conservative. Well, welcome, Pavlos. I'm excited uh, to have you here to talk about Eva Braun's Paradoxes of Education in a Republic. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to it. Uh, so let's start just by talking about Eva Braun herself, um, give our listeners just some uh, some kind of biographical information, who she is and and uh, what, what her career has been like. Yes, Eva Braun is the longest serving tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, tutor is the name for a faculty member of St. John's College, uh, and she's been there since 1957. Uh, and she is, as far as I know, still teaching. Uh, when she wrote this book, she, um, this book is from 1979. So she had taught there for 20 years, and she mentions that at the very opening. Um, and up to that point, in addition to a specialist work on ancient Greek pottery, um, her other big publication had been a translation of Jacob Klein's Greek Mathematical Thought and the Origin of Algebra from, from German into English, uh, which is still the available translation. Uh, so this book, Paradox of Education and Republic, is her, her first major book written in the spirit of liberal education, in the spirit of the institution at which she, uh, she has taught and, and continues to teach. Uh, she's gone on to write a number of other books. Um, some of them are thematic. She has a book on the imagination. She has a book on the nature of time. Uh, others are more textual in their focus. She has a book called Homeric Moments about clues to discovering delight in, in reading Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, something to that effect. Um, a book, a really wonderful book on the Republic called The Music of the Republic. Uh, she's also a really brilliant aphorist and essayist. And I think that manifests or is anticipated in, in this work by just how uh, dense and delightful and carefully wrought each sentence is. She's done a great deal uh, to carry the torch of her home institution, St. John's, uh, over the decades to define it and its mode of education for itself, to itself, and also for the outside world. She's, as these things go, she's a popular speaker and has been for a long time in the circuit of great books, liberal arts schools. 
um, across across the country. And although I don't think she has invoked this book often since its publication, I, I really view it as her first substantial working out of uh, the project that she and her her colleagues are engaged in um, in her teaching at at St. John's. I guess one one last thing to mention in terms of honorifics, she received the National Humanities Medal from President George W. Bush, I believe in two thousand five. Um, so she's she's been recognized within her own uh, her own college community, within the broader educational uh, community, and even nationally and politically um, for her work as a teacher and and also as an author. Do you happen to know if she's ever uh, been in in any kind of administrative position, or is she always have has she always been a tutor? She's served as dean. Um, I'm not sure if that's that was only one stint or several stints. Uh, she may have even served as interim president at some point. Don't quote oh, me on that. Although I guess that's that's in the podcast now, so I'm quoted. Uh, <laughs> but she she has been, I think, a, a, at certain times an official uh, leader, and at, at other times, uh, my sense is certainly during the last couple of decades, kind of unofficial uh, voice, uh, institutional memory, and also uh, exemplar for thinking through uh, philosophically and liberally the different uh, topics that are studied. Uh, different areas that are studied at the college, and also thinking through uh, the nature of liberal education itself. Great. Uh, well, let's get into um, a general introduction to the book. Uh, the book is obviously about liberal education, but uh, clearly she wants to think about liberal education in the context of the American Republic. Maybe just say a few words, general words, about her understanding of, of education, broadly speaking, and then, um, you know, after we talk about the kind of the general contour, some of the general claims of, about the book, we can get into the uh, specific paradoxes that she talks about. But yeah, let's just start talking about her vision of education in the most general terms. Yeah, she does a really wonderful job of distinguishing different forms of education, especially in, in, the, in the early, um, in the introduction and in early chapters. Uh, what she lands on for her understanding of education is she says, the course of education is the course of learning to read and to have an education is to know how to read read. Um, so it's a kind of bibliocentric uh, definition, but she expands it by saying uh, that education enables us to take up and read the world of knowledge. And through it, we can read the world of nature and the world of art. So education for her is really centered on books and her, her method of her preferred method of, um, teaching and studying and learning is very much in the tradition of the great books, the 20th, 21st century tradition of great books, liberal education. Uh, but of course, the purpose of that is to, to know reality. And she recognizes this. She says that the animating question should always be uh, when you are studying a great author or, or a great text, uh, is, is this true? Is, is what, is being, what is being said and is it true? And so she thinks that it is through uh, going through careful uh, discussion-based study of of the greatest books that we can come to know the the nature of the world. She decides to well well the book as a as a whole is a kind of philosophical historical inquiry into education, um, specifically the prospects of liberal education in a republic. That first word in the title is really important: paradoxes of education in a republic. By a paradox, she means a dilemma inherent in the thing itself. So she doesn't just mean uh, difficulties or stumbling blocks, 
She sets aside what she calls merely circumstantial uh, obstacles or difficulties to education uh, at the very beginning, saying she won't, she won't talk about those. Um, those circumstantial difficulties are all kinds of things that public policy are, are concerned with, access um, and, and funding and so on. Uh, and she instead looks at these dilemmas that are inherent in, in education in a republic itself. She takes a philosophical approach to, to liberal education, but it's also historical and particular. Uh, so she, she delves into what a liberal education is, but it's, it's not simply a treatise on that. It's, it's rooted in the American experience and the character of, of the American founding. Could you say a few words, Pavlos, about the, the kind of sources that she herself uses? Obviously, this, as, as you suggested, this is a kind of outline elaboration of her own thoughts on, on liberal education. Um, but she's obviously a very learned woman who's read, you know, everything under the sun, you know, since, <laughs> since a very long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what would you say her are the kind of primary sources that she, she delves into and, and uses and adapts um, to her own purposes in the book? Besides the usual sub suspects being everyone from Plato onwards, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, uh, all the way on to Bacon, Locke, uh, and the moderns for sort of modern flavor uh, or take on education. Uh, the main figure that she wrestles with is actually Thomas Jefferson in this book. So, so she goes through in, in the, at the beginning and says there are, there are a number of different kinds of writings on education that, that she has read and that are useful and that she occasionally deploys. And it really is incredible. It's a kind of, it, it, it's the full scope of the great books, plus all kinds of very thoughtful, sometimes prominent, sometimes obscure treatises on and, and dramas about, about education and liberal education from the whole scope of the Western tradition. But she really has her sights on, on Thomas Jefferson. And it, it is a kind of wrestling with, with Jefferson, um, the Rockfish Gap Report, uh, his plan for uh, study at the University of Virginia. Brand sets her sights on Jefferson uh, because she says, uh, in this country, the beginning really rules. In this country, the American founding, the principles of the American founding endure as principles uh, and, and continue to sort of shape our public and private lives, our social lives, and the, the character and prospects of, of education. And she looks to Jefferson as a great, a great representative of the American founding, especially on the, on the question of education. She doesn't enter into all of the, the nitty gritty of what the founder's education was, agreements and disagreements among them, but she very ably sums up a, a, an interpretation of their, of their education and their reaction to it. She says they were beneficiaries of the educational tradition uh, that had existed at the time, and, and then they repudiated it. So she sees the American founding as quite modern. It's a kind of incarnation of uh, philosophical modernity. She says it was it proceeded under the aegis of the Enlightenment, and she sees in Jefferson a great exemplar of that Janus-faced character of the American founding with respect to education. He received a, a classical education and was well-read in um, in the classics, especially the the Greeks, which is actually a little bit uh, unusual for for the founders. They they tend to prefer the Romans. And then he turned and envisioned something like modern higher education. Brand points to Jefferson's plans for the University of Virginia, which were somewhat thwarted. 
uh, and she sees in it an anticipation by 40 or 50 or 60 years of what would later come to pass in the middle of the 19th century, uh, which was Charles William Eliot's reform of Harvard University, Harvard College into Harvard U University, and this great advocacy for the modern research university in America. Brand, I think, sees that modern research university as decisively modern and sees it as in conflict, as it, as it was in the 19th century, in conflict with the traditional classical liberal arts colleges that had uh, dominated America in the colonial and founding periods and, and had shaped the founders, even though in, in her account, they had largely repudiated that traditional uh, formation. So she sees Jefferson as a kind of anticipation of the trajectory of American education in the 19th and then 20th centuries. She does not give her own version of that history of how the research university came to America, uprooted or disrupted or supplanted uh, classical liberal education, and then, and then came to dominate the world of higher ed uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, but instead, she says, there, there is a great figure who made intelligent, articulate, condensed arguments for this trajectory. And he also happened to be a preeminent founder, Thomas Jefferson. So let's, let's consider him and let's wrestle with him. Yeah, just for our listeners, revealing to them what they can get out of this book. I mean, it's a wonderful philosophical engagement with the question of education, but I think you can just learn a ton of stuff about what different founders thought, especially Jefferson about education, you know, and Henry Knox and Webster. And then there, there's just a ton of interesting tidbits in here. There was, I was struck by something on, uh, on page three, she's, she's trying to make the case that, um, you know, some of our present dilemmas as, as in late 20th century dilemmas on education, you know, were, were problems way back when. And, and she 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 reads from a scholar's manual at uh, Heidelberg University in 1481, and yes. and you know talks about how they were complaining about reading going out of fashion <laughs> in mm -hmm. 1481 and degrees being degraded. And so I think she's you know she's just wonderful at making the case that you know there's not not much that's new under the sun, and and you can sort of see the tensions and and dilemmas in in the kind of education that she she wants to talk about you know way way back when so it's it has a kind of charming charming aspect to it both for its kind of deep wisdom but but also just hey look look at what these guys were saying way back when you know we're, we're not so different from from them and so it's a very entertaining book in that in that way i think it is and and i don't think it can be read quickly or lightly and yet uh, I, at least, maybe this is a matter of taste, I at least find the way that she crafts her sentences, the humor that, that often comes through in them to be really delightful to read. And so you can, you can really read this and, and chew it over and, and enjoy it if you're, if you're interested in these topics. Uh, and there is, I, I mean, this is a, a hundred and less than 150 pages of the main text, and it is, it is absolutely packed. And the, and the footnotes as well, just she's at each point pointing to all kinds of references in in the great books and also in these landmark articulations of education uh, throughout the last 2000 years that you can then profit a great deal from, from just, just from learning that such a book existed in the, in the 1500s or from going to the specific passages in Plato and Locke and right. Bacon and, and comparing them. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, let's get into to the argument then. As you, as you already mentioned, um, she proceeds through these three paradoxes. Uh, they are utility, tradition, and rationality. You've already said a little bit about why she thinks 
it's proper to proceed through the idea of paradox, that there are certain things about, you know, what education is that mean you're, you're just going to have to confront these paradoxes. They can't be kind of overcome or solved, or, or maybe the best we can do is kind of manage the tensions. But um, so let, let's just dive in and talk about the first paradox. The first one she starts with is, is uh, utility. So just, yeah, say a little bit about what that paradox is, and, and then maybe we can get into some of the specific arguments and then talk about her, uh, her at the end, we should say at the end of each of these paradoxes, um, she proposes a kind of way to to manage them. We'll get into yeah, sort of what it is and then the way she she claims she can manage it. The final section of each chapter is always titled uh, the attempted resolution of this paradox. It's very it's very humble but also uh, really impressive what what she does with it, but she's she's articulating the paradox. She she states each paradox in the introduction and then she explores all kinds of issues that that feed into an informant and, and show how it is a paradox, a dilemma inherent in the thing itself, uh, in the body of, of each each chapter, and then and then she concludes each with her attempt to resolve it. So the first paradox, the paradox of utility, Brand says, is that utilitarian education treats learning as a means, but learning is naturally an end in itself. Learning, properly speaking, is its own end. It's its own good. It's something something to be done for its own sake and enjoyed, and yet utility tries to treat it as a means. And so she explores uh, some, what she calls, misconstructions of utility in education. For example, certification, premature vocationalism, uh, trying to turn oneself into a, a improver of society, trying to change the world, solve all kinds of social problems. And then she also explores uh, different forms of educational inutility, which is not quite what she's she's aiming at. She gives exa- as examples pure humanistic scholarship, and also um, the education of gentlemen. And then she explores three aspects of of true utility in education, uh, and she names them ancillary learning, the kind of education that that is a means because it's useful for further learning, individual utility, the kind of education that's going to be uh, profitable to oneself, uh, and finally. Most interestingly, for her purposes, uh, social education or so education towards social usefulness, or even civic education, citizen education. Uh, this is the kind of education that's useful because it makes one fit to serve others. Uh, and through this, she discusses a series of oppositions as they appear in the early American Republic. So she talks me, about. Can I ask you one one quick question before you dive into the oppositions? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think it's fair to say then that that um, Brand thinks that education has to be at least partly utilitarian in a republic because of the nature of a republic? Yes, she's going to wind up saying that. So, to to first to directly answer the question, uh, education has a kind of tendency and temptation to be utilitarian in a republic in a way that it might not in other regimes. Uh, precisely because a, res- a republic is a race publica, a kind of worldly public thing, individuals are called upon to be citizens, to be, to be public individuals, to be concerned with the public. And that's all well and good, but Bran is aware that that creates certain tensions or exposes certain tensions in the nature of, of education. So it, it may be that in, I don't know, in some kind of aristocratic uh, setting, 
uh, more aristocratic, far more aristocratic than, than the American regime, uh, gentlemanly education would be a, a good form of education to pursue, and, and Bren would sort of leave it at that. Uh, she suggests at, at one point that this is the sort of thing Leo Strauss is up to, uh, where he's he's recommending a kind of aristocratic version of of liberal education. Uh, Strauss is interesting to discuss, what, but we should I guess we should leave that to one side because we're talking about Brand here. Brand says that it, yeah, it's because we are precisely because we're citizens of a republic, and precisely because the American republic is concerned with commerce and technology. Uh, that we are drawn in a kind of special way towards um, towards usefulness and towards the we're, we're tempted to uh, utilize our education in a way that other regimes and other other cultures uh, might not be. Uh, good, she'll good. wind up saying that there's a kind of happy resolution to this, which is that there's a coincidence between the goods of liberal education pursued in the specific way she recommends and and uh, civic benefits. Uh, but it, it winds up being a coincidence, not uh, directing liberal education towards civics or towards the public in any in any direct way. So it's a kind of accidental benefit of liberal education. It's a very happy accident. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost as if you've solved the, the, the problem that she recognizes is there from just inherent in human nature, going back to Plato's discussion uh, in the Republic of really a philosopher Keynes and of uh, this version of liberal education trying to be public spirited, and yet it's it's going beyond merely political concerns by aiming at the good. Her ver- her understanding of the American Republic is: you can do this liberal education, you can engage in liberal education for its own sake, and you will wind up making yourself a better citizen by by doing so. Um, right. The, the right. full argument for that is in, in chapter three. But uh, in any case, she yeah. explores. Oh, go ahead. No, so let's yeah, let's dig into some of the. Uh, I mean, she. She describes American education as being caught between a bunch of extremes. Uh, she, she mentions a bunch, but I'll just mention two. The extremes of ideality and reality or the extremes of community uh, and individuality or, or something like this. And then, and then she says the American Republic is full of these oppositions that one has to confront. You know, any person thinking about education in the American context will come across uh, will come across these oppositions. I thought we might talk about two of them. If my list doesn't uh, match yours, we can we can make a quick substitution. But I was struck by the tradition revolution opposition and the excellence and equality opposition. So you know say say a few things about either either one of those. Yeah. So she she begins with this opposition between tradition and revolution. Again, she explores each of these through through Jefferson in particular, uh, and so she contrasts Jefferson's education for everyone, which is needed because each regime decays, and so you you solve that problem by making sure that uh, the citizen body in general is is well educated. Uh, with uh, she she sees that in a kind of tension with uh, the formation of of Republican citizens who are taught civics and patriotism. The difficulty in educate is a, is education. Uh, of a national uh, Republican sentiment. And she, she winds up faulting Jefferson for uh, trying to solve this problem by teaching what he calls a form, a form of ideology, uh, by sort of importing a kind of partisan civics into, into his formation of, of Republican, um, Republican formation. Uh, so she traces a kind of degeneration from Jefferson's Republican citizen to, to Dewey's socially adjusted individual who's 
who's willing to conform. And then there's a, a reaction against that in individual self-expression uh, leading to a decline uh, of, of rigor and, and standards. She also explores in this section the, the change from, or, or the way in which a patriotism of reflection uh, as, as Tocqueville describes it and as Lincoln, Lincoln tries to inculcate it, can lead away from a more imaginative or, or passionate uh, uh, patriotism. And she actually suggests that this leads to this, this more intellectual or reflective version of patriotism sort of opens the door to these centrifugal ethnic loyalties. Um, I was really struck by this because it seems like at the end of the 1970s, when, when Brand is writing, and then at the beginning of the 2020s, when, when we're reading this book, uh, there's, a, there's a similar uh, difficulty that, that, that wells up in this respect, where an a intellectual approach to the American founding, which she herself favors, where you're concerned with founding documents like, like the principles of the Declaration, uh, precisely by focusing on that kind of creedal, reflective, intellectual patriotism, uh, there might not be enough blood and sap in that to catch everyone's attention. And so it leaves the door open to people, well, really to identitarianism uh, and, and uh, multiculturalism and, and other forms of uh, citizen degrading uh, ide ideologies. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was struck by that section too. Yeah, I was, I was a little uh, almost surprised. She makes, and I think she did, you, you mentioned Lincoln and, and um, she alludes to his Lyceum address, both I think in this chapter and then in the uh, in the final chapter on on rationality, it seems like she's she makes room in her uh, in this chapter on utility and and in the chapter on on rationality uh, for for a kind of reverence for the founding. Um, I, th I think she mentions Madison uh, in Federalist Forty Nine, and um, and so it's it's interesting. She, she almost seems like that's a necessary stepping necessary stepping stone in order to uh, inculcate. A kind of desire uh, for understanding, like re reverence, in in her view, seems to be a kind of component part of genuine intellectual desire. Um, I, I was sort of struck thinking about thinking about that, and and um, you know, obviously the figure of Socrates, and <laughs> according to the Athenians, he wasn't a very good reverent <laughs> Athenian citizen. So, you know, Brand seems to make the case for a kind of civic piety that's. I guess not only not only makes room for education, but as a kind of necessary component part of of uh, intellectual desire. Yeah, and I wonder if that's the case in part because, as she sees it, the American founding is itself so intellectual and is itself so informed by uh, philosophy. That that said, she is not simply content with a kind of a coincidence between philosophy rightly understood and. The philosophy informing the American founding. Uh, she's willing to to take up the ancients and say uh, there there are some disagreements uh, or different approaches to to the, these problems uh, that that the ancients take as opposed to that the moderns take. And it seems like the founders are mostly siding with the moderns. This is of course a still a hot topic of debate, and she doesn't exactly go in and, and explore that fully. She but but she she shows it here and there, and, and then moves on. And so on on the one hand. She's, she may have a greater comfort with this uh, harmony between the intellectual life and citizenship than, than Socrates would, precisely because our founding was so philosophically informed. On the other hand, it's not a simple, she's not simply a classical liberal or, or something like that who says, 
the founders were Enlightenment thinkers. The Enlightenment is right about all things under the sun. Therefore, we can love Enlightenment philosophy and also love the founders. Uh, she has great, great deal of respect for the ancients. She has a wonderful digression at one point on the ancient understanding of music in the expansive sense, musical education uh, for the formation of, of the entire human person and for the formation of a citizen. And she kind of traces the diminished role of that in, in modern political philosophy. And she clearly sees that uh, as, as a degradation. Uh, and, then, and then she says, this is, this is part of our inheritance uh, through, through the founding is this kind of diminished role of, of music and in, in soul formation. The other, the other thing to note is simply she's uh, maybe on a more biographical note or historical note, thinking about the 20th century, Brand, Brand is born in Berlin in 1929. She comes to the United States in 1941. Uh, she's incredibly grateful to the United States and happy to be in the United States. She's from a German Jewish family and um, she got out of Germany and came to the United States. And so she has this kind of uh, reverence for America. Perhaps it springs as well from these personal factors and from these, um, just any, uh, something that anyone could, could look at comparing the totalitarianisms of the 20th century to the relatively good life that's possible throughout the United States in the 20th century. Um, so that may also also play a role yeah. in, in her appreciation for it, uh, favorableness towards the founding. Right, right. Yeah, I like her, um, your discussion about kind of the founding's relationship to, you know, to modern political philosophy and, and uh, I guess the modern, what, what we've come to call the modern project more broadly. She, she has this, uh, this passage on, um, on page 53, this is in the utility, utility chapter. And she notes that the virtue, the virtue that early writers wish to inculcate is a mean between the grand selfless passion of ancient republics and the calculating enlightened self-interest of modern moralists. So there's, there's a, there's a kind of, um, I don't know, mediation, mediation going on that she, that she wants to seize upon. And, and I think you're right. It, it, um, you know, maybe it may, maybe it stems from, you know, her, ex, her experience of, of what modern ideology is capable of, but I think it's, it's a really interesting, really interesting effort to try to, you know, resolve the, the tensions and the modernity of the, of the founding, you might say. One, one more note on that point. It's, it's really interesting to think about her, the moderation of her tone when she's describing current events in 1979, considering the context of 1979. She says in, in the beginning of the book um, that, that they, America is still a gently heaving, but essentially stable country. And that's in 1979. And I, I wasn't alive then, but from what I know of the history of the 1960s and 70s, uh, I don't know if it was gently heaving. It seems like there was great, a great deal of heaving in America in the 1960s and 70s. And she has a kind of coolness and perspective looking at these, these events that today we look back on and say, we talk about the student upheavals in the late 60s. We talk about the sexual revolution. Uh, we talk about the rise of the uh, Black power and other kind of identity movements. Uh, all of this social upheaval as, as the baby boomers come of age and, and Brand says, he, she looks around and says, we're still essentially stable uh, and, and, and talks a little bit about the, the difficulty of instituting radical change in America for better or for worse. Um, she, she thinks that there's, there are still the, the, the kinds of motions that are possible are these modest improvements uh, uh, here and there kind of around the edges or in the, the nooks and crannies of, of the regime. And, 
And I think that's what she understands herself and, and her own college to be doing is a kind of radical project, but just on a very small contained scale that's not going to uh, spill out and transform the entire landscape of, of American education. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you m- maybe um, just kind of briefly s- sum up uh, just one more time before we move on to tradition, um, h- how she thinks this paradox of utility is is kind of ultimately at least partially resolved? Yes. Yeah, so she she restates this paradox towards the end of the chapter, saying that if the desire to know is the essential aspect of human nature, then utilitarian education is a contradiction in terms. And yet a republic, precisely by being a republic, she says it has a genuine public business, which is to provide for the possibility and protection of a good life in the worldly sense, a good life here and now, which gives all education that occurs within a republic a utilitarian cast. So so no matter what, this is sort of the the playing field that we're all in when we're, when we're educating ourselves in the Republic. Um, she, she then pivots to and, and introduces the term liberal education. She says rather hopefully that all useful studies like most useful work can be, uh, can sometimes be pursued liberal edu- li- liberally. The converse, however, does not hold all liberal education is not useful. And then invoking the declaration of independence uh, she says, precisely because our republic seeks to facilitate the pursuit of happiness, uh, all of its ways are instrumental. Uh, our public realm is primarily one of means. Therefore, inquiry into purposes, goods, ends ought always to have been crucial in America. Uh, she says that this kind of instrumental learning, however, instrumental learning, however, neglects ends, but we have that promise of the pursuit of happiness stated in the Declaration of Independence. And she's going to wind up arguing that the liberal education, the inquiry into the nature of things that she's so interested in is significant for, uh, perhaps even indispensable for, for happiness. Uh, so she says a liberal education is not necessary for life. It's not even necessary for liberty. So she doesn't say that you need a liberal education in order to have a free republic, but she says it's, it's necessary though not sufficient or as nearly necessary as anything can be shown to be for the pursuit of happiness. She qualifies that a bit. It, it seems like her own understanding, and, and perhaps this is her inclination towards Socrates and, and towards the ancients coming through. Uh, she thinks that you, you need to be able to be liberally educated. You need to be able to inquire and engage in this kind of philosophical activity in order to be happy. Uh, again, that's a very ancient Socratic view of, of happiness or Aristotelian view of happiness. And yet she she's trying to bring that into the Declaration's pursuit of happiness and the prospects of education in the American Republic. So she describes this kind of liberal education as a near essential preparation for a good life. And she's, she's qualifying it around the edges, but it's, she wants to say it's essential for a good life. Uh, and she says, in, in our Republic, a chance at a good life is, is a kind of right, a kind of natural right that we all have. Very good, very good. So let's let's move on to the second uh, paradox. Uh, she, this is tradition. Her definition of of tradition is you know one you would expect. She she talks about its roots in the in the Latin uh, language to be a, a kind of handing down. She says it has a principle of of motion in it uh, that is capable equally a principle of continuity and of selection. I kind of like that that passage. Um, but what's the what's the paradox of, of tradition? How does it relate to education and a republic? 
the way she first introduces it, she says, the paradox of tradition that we've inherited is that our founders repudiated the tradition that had educated them, and yet the founders are our tradition. So, so we're, we, our own tradition is based on a repudiation of tradition, which was done very self-consciously, and she says eloquently and intelligently. Uh, she doesn't think they were thoughtlessly to- tossing aside their tradition. So we are, in a way, stuck with our forebearers being anti, anti-traditionalists. When she turns to the chapter on tradition itself uh, and dis- describes the tradition, uh, she really means the tradition of, of great books, the books of the West. And she gives one of these, uh, she has in various writings, diff- different ways of describing what a great book is, uh, different criteria. Uh, here she says great books possess inexhaustibility of meaning, elegance of formulation, and self-sufficiency of presentation. They aim at truth-telling uh, primarily rather than a kind of training of the soul or, or character formation. Uh, and she also describes how this is a quarrelsome tradition. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't all sing from the same hymnal, perhaps. He then describes a number of positions with, with respect to the tradition. Uh, and, and she says, she gives five positions that are associated with historical epochs, but are not themselves uh, necessarily historical. You can sort of adopt different ones at, at different times. So the one that correlates to antiquity is a position of origination with respect to the tradition. Uh, this is a kind of immediate relation to, to what one has. This is, this is a position of classical Greece with respect to Homer, for example. Uh, of course, Homer is the tradition in, uh, in Periclean Athens, but he's not seen as uh, removed by centuries and therefore must be looked at in a different light because he's less enlightened or earlier or, or something like that. Uh, but there's a kind of immediacy there. Correlated with the, the Middle Ages is the position of canonization, where this is where she mentions the development and division of the liberal arts arises. And there's a corresponding de-emphasis on what she calls the originating authority of the authors. So when you think about what liberal education looks like in the Middle Ages, there's actually a great de-emphasis on what we would call great books education, and there's more of an emphasis on on the arts, uh, the the trivium and quadrivium. Uh, She describes renovation as a third position with respect to the tradition. This course corresponds to the Renaissance. It's a recovery of appreciation for, for authorship. And she has a wonderful quote from Petrarch, um, incited by texts they gave birth to themselves. And Brand comments here, um, although we live at a, a, a later and different historical period than, than the Renaissance, she says, I think that renovation is the mode most essential to the life of the tradition. And I think that we now are so situated as to be capable of no other novelty. Right? Incited by these great texts, we can give, we can give birth again. And so it seems like her, her own project here or her own book in Paradoxes of Education and Republic might be evidence of that, where she is producing something novel and original, having sunk very deeply into, into the tradition of the great books. Following this is the, the view of repudiation, which uh, corresponds to the age of reason or to the enlightenment. Here, the, the traditional project of the transmission of knowledge gives way to the project for the advancement and diffusion of knowledge, uh, beginning with, with authors such as Bacon. Uh, here, the moderns prevail over the ancients, uh, and there's an emphasis on things, on, on real things, as opposed to mere words, book learning, and a kind of corresponding elevation of the authority of scientific instruments over 
the received tradition of what, say, Aristotle said in the physics. Uh, and then there's, she says, there's a yielding of authority to evidence. And so you, you put the, the emphasis on what, what can be shown em, empirically or, or scientifically. Finally, and this is the, the most modern or contemporary position towards the tradition. On the one hand, the tradition has been inundated with rival productions. Uh, so there's a kind of multiculturalism, uh, uh, an awareness of different traditions. Um, moreover, she says that books of books, canonical status, have nearly all proclaimed the ending of the Western tradition. She seems to be thinking here of authors like Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. So the greatest authors of our time seem to be declaring that, that the tradition is over or exhausted. She mentions how there's a the exponential change that's character, characteristic of the modern era gives an illusion of newness, uh, which is reinforced by the eclipse and ignorance of the old. So everything seems to be speeding up. Uh, and also we're ignorant of, of what came before. So, so that impression is reinforced. Therefore, the problem of relevance becomes acute. And so we, we, we look to books to see whether they can, they can help us solve particular pressing social problems or personal problems, as opposed to sitting in sort of in the mode of disciples at the feet of, of the great authors. She's, Brand describes this as a time of stagnation that needs to be renewed. Hence her emphasis on renovation earlier, uh, not a, a time of, of true change. Uh, and finally, she mentions the, the challenge of historicism, which has a deadening effect on, on learning, which leads the academy to treat tradition taxidermically, uh, as if uh, these great authors are just dead and stuffed and we can sort of admire them, but, but not learn, uh, learn from them. Uh, and so she calls for a return to a kind of immediate encounter uh, with the great books and, and a, a, an attention to their authorship so that we might stir up something new in, in response to them. And so she, um, I mean, I, I think if you sort of step back and kind of think about that sketch that she gives you, and then think about what she's uh, suggesting you know, students might do in response to that. I mean, uh, I think it's clear that she's emphasizing the, the hetero, the utter heterogeneity of, of the tradition, that it's, it's made up of all these different approaches all these different authors and kind of elements that, that, you know, some of them, as you've just emphasized by the people at the end who are engaged in a, in a pretty thorough effort of repudiation, you know, but, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't really uh, know that if you, if you think of a tradition as this kind of lifeless dead thing that's handed down from one generation to the next and everyone kind of are, Every, everyone in the tradition kind of agrees with one another. I mean, you just think about the the caricatures of of um, of the so-called Western tradition from its enemies today. I mean, I think she's she's very upfront and, and emphasizing that whatever the Western tradition is, it's the opposite of of that. So I, I think she's sort of emphasizing that to to be to become animated by you know these authors is is to engage in in a kind of conversation and, and to engage in a kind of deep philosophic questioning to which you're going to get, you know, 30 different answers to a, to a kind of simple, simple question. So I, I was, that's what I was kind of struck by when I read this, this section of the book. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about this is in contrast to some of the other, at least superficial interpretations of, of other approaches um, to, to the Western tradition, you might think of the great dichotomies that Strauss puts forward between ancients and moderns, 
Uh, and then he also talks about the tension between reason and revelation as what gives vitality to the Western tradition. Uh, unfortunately, at, at least a temptation, once you've received those dichotomies, is to then read everything just through them and say, you've got ancients and you've got moderns and you've got, um, and you've got proponents of reason, you've got proponents of revelation and sort of everything has to fit into one or the other. Uh, to shift to someone besides Strauss, there, you could think of a very um, self-consciously traditionalistic uh, approach to the Western tradition where you, you have something like the ancients-moderns dichotomy or maybe the, the ancients reaching a peak in the medievals and then everything has been downhill from then. Uh, that kind of narrative of, of the Western tradition can take the form, whatever, whatever its merits, it can take the form of a kind of morality play or a, a kind of simplistic reduction where uh, Aristotle or Aristotle perfected by Aquinas or pick your, pick your other medieval turned out to be right about everything. And, and everyone who comes after him uh, is, they are the villains at which we can lay all, all responsibility for all contemporary evils. If only we could go back. Uh, Brand is very emphatic that she's she's not calling for some kind of return to the past. She says we need to somehow bring the past and the wisdom of the past into the present. And so, while there are much more nuanced and I think fruitful versions of the dichotomies I've just described, one is left with those, or or it's it's easy to take away those easy um, dichotomies and superficial readings. It's very hard to reduce Brand to something like that uh, yeah, yeah, here. Yeah although she's managed to group uh, these different stances correlated with different periods in a way that, that seems true to the historical uh, period uh, in a very helpful way, but she's managed to do so in a, in a more nuanced kind of fine grain, fine grain way. Right. And then, and then um, just, just kind of moving to the, uh, to the attempted resolution. I mean, whatever the tradition is, she emphasizes at the end that engagement with the tradition is, is at odds with the spirit of the American Republic, uh, because of its its dynamism, right? Its its uh, focus on the world of of commerce, um, you know, it's impatient of authority. It wants applicable, you know, real knowledge of the world. All these things are are at odds with with the idea of acquainting oneself with a tradition. You know that that takes that takes time, and it doesn't produce the immediate results that the democratic republic necessarily wants, but she emphasizes, right, that the engagement with the tradition is going to produce thoughtful citizens capable of, of reflection, capable of judgment, kind of genuine independence of mind. And so the she seems to suggest that the, the republic is impatient with an engagement with the tradition, but it's actually precisely the kind of thing it, it needs. And so a couple couple things she mentions in her resolution that I want to ask you about. She talks about how the, the engagement with the tradition can be uh, produced by a uh, what she calls a, a kind of a leisured interlude between childhood and adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and she also emphasizes the importance of, of what she calls inquiry. This is a word that comes up again in the last part, but um, I, I just wanted to focus on on those two things: the importance of this kind of temporary moment of leisure, and then that moment will be defined by this spirit of of inquiry. If you could just talk about those two ideas, sure. So this leisurely interlude, Brand Brand looks at America and is very happy to discover that there's a convention that 
students in their late teens and early 20s, uh, very little is expected of them <laughs> uh, in a practical way. They're, they're expected instead to go to, go to college. Uh, and she says, this is, this is a great convention because it, it coincides with this period in life where there is a certain maturity of thought, or at least potential for maturity of thought, a certain advancement in, in the understanding coinciding with a kind of upsurge of eros, of erotic love. And she thinks that those two together, she says there's, they, they reappear together at a later point in, in life. Uh, but between, I think she says 16 and 22 or so, uh, so college age, students are awakened uh, by their eros to desire things, which can, there's a great tradition going back to Plato's Socrates, that this can include knowledge and, and, um, and philosophy, really. Eros can be the engine for philosophy. And yet they're also... Uh, have had this new explosion of rational capacity. And so together, that, that makes for the possibility of philosophizing. Uh, she really seems to think that college students are, are at a special point in life in their own development where they're able to engage in philosophical inquiry. And luckily, providentially, uh, America has this convention of setting aside precisely this time for a, a leisured pursuit with all of those qualifications that you made that our American society and, and particular families and, and so on, our culture expect, you know, you're always going to come home from Christmas uh, uh, for Christmas from, from your fall semester and, and your uncle's going to ask you, so, so what are you going to do with that degree or something to that effect? All of that is there. And she sees that as really built into our character, uh, the character of our regime from the very beginning. And yet we have this, this golden opportunity to engage in, in inquiry, um, this this is a kind of she winds up saying that there there wind up being public reasons to study the tradition and to do it in a in a very specific way. And here, I think that this conclusion of chapter two is is her uh, indirect way uh, of describing precisely the program of education at at St. John's College or something like it. Um, she says at the beginning of the book this this book grew out of uh, the fruit of 20 years of teaching at St. John's. And she says in a few of the, the footnotes when, when she actually is done describing the program, she says, this is the kind of program attempted by, by St. John's. Um, that said, this is not just a, a book for insiders or for those who are, who are interested in St. John's College, because I think she actually makes a case that needs to be considered that this is a good version of liberal education. And it is also coincidentally going to be beneficial to uh, citizens of a republic. She first describes the pedagogical form uh, that would be fruitful for approaching the, the tradition. And there's a kind of uh, Republican or Democratic discussion uh, mode. She says the frank and friendly intention to aid inquiry through, through conversation. Inquiry, she, she says, is an activity in which teaching and learning are not quite separable. So you can think of the seminar format in which the teacher is actually asking a question to, to kick off the discussion, which is a real question for the teacher. Uh, it's not just what's this piece of information in the reading that you did, or here's a leading question that's going to lead, lead to the next question that, that I want us to get to so we get through our lesson plan. But instead, having sat down and read this, this great text or examined this natural phenomenon, uh, here is a question that I, the advanced learner, the most advanced learner in the room, genuinely have in response to that. 
that's a kind of invitation to something like philosophy, something like philosophizing um, in common in, uh, through a discussion. And Brand thinks that, that that's going to wind up, she calls it a Republican mode of teaching, uh, I think because it's going to train uh, its students to uh, ask about means and ends, uh, to, as we say, think for themselves, but not in a kind of detached, disembodied, floating way of, of thinking whatever you want uh, for yourself, but instead uh, thinking through uh, the character of, of the thing that you've just encountered, uh, really a kind of preparation for political deliberation. It's never the, the direct goal, but Brand seems to think that this kind of inquiry through seminar discussion would enable you to deliberate about things that, that a republic needs to deliberate about. Uh, and then she also discusses the, the educational means uh, that, that are available for, for studying the tradition. She distinguishes between authors and arts, which is to say between the great books and, and the liberal arts. Uh, and she groups the great books into three kinds, uh, poetry, science, and philosophy. Uh, and, and each of these in a, in a very uh, ex expansive, uh, expansive meaning. Poetry works of the imagination, uh, science works of, of reason, and philosophy works, works of the intellect. And, and she says that there is a special reason for Americans, uh, for citizens of the modern American Republic, to philosophize and also to consider uh, uh, the, the presuppositions and findings of, of science. Um, she, she says there is this kind of supra-political or trans-political reason to read philosophy, because philosophy itself is a kind of uh, human excellence that transcends political considerations. But there's also a, a practical reason. She says, we moderns require philosophy precisely as moderns, because our life is informed by rational constructs. And so precisely because we live in a technological, scientific, and rational society, we need to make ourselves rational so that we can understand it and be, be accountable for it and, and help guide um, science in the public realm. So philosophy is useful to us insofar as we're citizens of a republic. And it's also useful to us as a, as a means to wondering. Uh, she sums this up by saying, what was an exemplary culmination for the ancients is for us a common necessity. There's a way in which every citizen of the American Republic needs to be a kind of philosopher, whereas that was just a, a wonderful way to live in, in an ancient aristocratic context. Could you say, um, maybe, maybe we're, we're a little bit getting tight on time, so, so maybe just tie that in to the resolution of the, of the paradox of, of rationality, because there she revisits what you've already discussed, um, the, the, the importance of this mode of inquiry, the importance um, of asking genuine questions. You know, you've touched on that kind of pedagogical point and, you know, how it's different from just the mere conveyance of, of information. So, so maybe just, just say a few things about how inquiry and, and question, um, question asking and this kind of philosophical mode of, of teaching and learning, what, how, to, how that connects to the, to the paradox of rationality. And then maybe we can move on to, to some concluding thoughts. Yes. Yeah, so she introduces the paradox of rationality by, by noting that Americans embrace a strangely modern iteration of reason, which she, she titles rationality, uh, a kind of version of reason that's insufficient to the task of Republican uh, citizenship 
And so then, then she says the, the resolution is a, a return occasionally, for example, during the college years uh, to another mode of learning, which, which she dubs inquiry. Um, so she cites Tocqueville in describing Americans as these natural Cartesians. None of us have read or heard of, of Descartes, but we're all Cartesians in the way that we, we approach the world. And there's a kind of narrowing of, of reason uh, in, in our notion of, of ration, rationality. And what she means by inquiry, uh, she, she explores towards the end of, of the third chapter. It's, it's this um, ability to ask a genuine question. Uh, she, she described it as an expectant vacancy, a receptive openness, a defined ignorance, above all, a directed desire of the intellect. Uh, once it is asked, uh, once the question is asked, it asks the person to share the truth. It demands an account from the world. Uh, she says, in either case, the condition of asking is the hope that the question can draw to us something we are in want of. So she mentioned at one point that that her guiding assumption is that there is such a thing as logos. There is such a thing uh, as reason in the human mind that somehow can correspond to, to the things in this world. And so when we ask a question, we are, we are making a kind of statement of hope or of faith that transform an educational institution really back from the modern research university to something like a college that is devoted to inquiry. Uh, and, and she says this, this uh, community will have to eschew some of the conventions of modern academia. She says precisely, it, 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 there will be less emphasis on research and dissemination of knowledge, more emphasis on uh, deep dives into questions uh, as if they matter right now for the students in front of, in front of the teacher. Um, and without, without a sort of attention to how this will impact the world of research and, and making a difference in the world um, because of that, uh, that phenomenon. You could, you could see how this is helpful for, uh, for politics. Uh, the economy is in decline. Why is it in decline? Uh, we have a certain, certain amount of corruption or, or misguided foreign policy. Uh, who is responsible for this? That kind of basic question uh, may arise very indirectly from the habit of questioning uh, that, that occurs in, in the kind of classroom she's describing. So she says, insofar as it encourages learning, a school fosters a, a most desirable civic virtue, uh, learning and, and the asking of questions. So she says, the true school is in the happy position of being able to discharge a moral function through its own intellectual life. It incidentally produces or equips people to be good citizens in a republic by pursuing directly its own inquiry, its own philosophical or detached liberal inquiries. Maybe we can now jump from um, Brand, Brand's book to kind of current current debates and, and how you might think some of her ideas speak to um, some of the dilemmas surrounding liberal education today. But in the very concluding pages of the book, she, she deals with the accusation that uh, liberal education is impractical. Mm -hmm. And she says it's not impractical, but she calls it pre-practical. Mm -hmm. And I sort of love that, love that formulation. Um, so, so maybe just, just say something about what she means by that because I think that that might, um, you know, lead us lead us um, lead us down a connection to um, to how how Brand you know is, is is speaking to to debates that were going on in the 1970s, but as she points out, they were going on 300 years before that, and turns out we're having the same same conversations in 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's pre-practical precisely by equipping students to be to be capable of good practice later on. She distinguishes pre-practical from, from impractical, 
she says, pre-practical learning is the immediate contemplation of a human in the natural world aided by good books. The ability to ask questions about ends as well as means, um, and when, when discussing means, not discussing it in, in the, the pressured context of needing to make a decision and act on it right now, but considering various means, but especially considering ends. So again, to, to return to the, the Declaration of Independence and its, 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 its statement about our, our right to the pursuit of happiness, uh, Brand thinks we need to become thoughtful in order to pursue that well individually and, and in community, in society. And yet our focus on means, on utility, means we're always, we're, we're, we're never asking the question about what we should be aiming at, we're instead asking about effective routes to, to some end that has been given or assumed without being investigated. Uh, Brand thinks that this kind of liberal education, this philosophical inquiry is, is pre-practical because it would, it would make you equipped to determine what the right end is, make you equipped to discover what the right end is uh, for yourself to live a good life, perhaps even also for, for your community and polity to aim at its proper ends. And that is achieved, she, she thinks, through, through practice, or at, at least you're not going to achieve that later in life. You're not going to be capable of being a good citizen unless you have had a sustained uh, practice at this special period in your life of learning how to discover discover the proper end of something, learning to ask those questions about, about what we should be aiming at. Well, great. Um, so maybe we can end um, by, by talking about um, kind of the distinctiveness of her vision and understanding of liberal education. As, as you know, this um, the enduring interest is, is gonna do, do podcasts about um, various authors on this theme, what you've already mentioned, Leo Strauss, we're going to um, do an episode on, on Strauss's thoughts on education. We'll, we'll do one on uh, Michael Oakeshott. We'll do one on Hannah Arendt and, and maybe some others. Um, and so, I mean, I won't ask you to, to talk about Brand's vision vis-a-vis those other thinkers necessarily in particular, but, but maybe, maybe just say a few things about what you think, you know, Brand's voice kind of adds to this debate that, that really is distinctive and that, you, you kind of don't see, you know, from, from other voices. I mean, I think the ideas that we've, some of the ideas that we've, we've talked about that, that she elucidates so far, you'll, you'll find some of them, some of those ideas in, in, you know, different forms amongst kind of, I guess, broadly speaking, conservative critics of, of kind of how people are thinking about education today. But I, I'd just be curious to hear from you what, what you think kind of brand adds that, that you really just don't really see emphasized for whatever reason, from from other from other voices who are kind of um, you know tr- trying to attack the the problem from from a similar point of view. Sure, there there are some aspects that are specifically about the practice of education or the philosophy of education, and there are other aspects of Brand's thought that I think are are helpful to to see, which are about institutions of education. Um, in terms of the practice, uh, her emphasis on seminar discussion. And her sort of justification of seminar, not just as a means to getting at the wisdom of, of the greatest authors, but as a substantial good in itself, uh, a kind of enjoyable activity that also cultivates uh, certain good habits and virtues in its students for thinking and also for citizenship. Uh, I see Bran as a great, eloquent, distinctive uh, articulator and proponent of, 
of the seminar approach to, to education or, or to this inquiry where there's a, a blurred line between teaching and learning uh, in student and, and teacher. Uh, like many of those other authors, she is a proponent of the great books and the liberal arts. Uh, so she is, uh, and, and in this respect, she may have more in common with um, certain Catholic proponents of, of liberal education in the 20th century, the, the school of Thomas Aquinas College, and so on, in that she carves out special room for the trivium and the quadrivium uh, in their own updated ways with, with the tools of modern science and, and the reproduction of scientific experiments. She does not, as much as she loves and has great respect for the authority of, of the authors of great books, she does not think it's sufficient to just move through the canon of, of great books, reading and discussing them in a seminar. She also thinks that in the pursuit of wisdom and also in the pursuit of, of excellent citizenship, we need to wrestle with the foundations of modern mathematics and modern science. Her own work uh, with Jacob Klein and translating his book, Greek Mathematical Thought and the Origins of Algebra, surely uh, helped inform this, this view of hers. It's just incredible. It strikes me as incredibly relevant in the year after the pandemic that it would be very helpful for more American citizens to be able to, th to think through the presuppositions and, and to understand the methods of different branches of modern science precisely to be citizens, not, not just for its own good or, or to go into a, um, a profession in science, but to, to be a citizen, to deliberate in public with others. Uh, Brand's approach to liberal education is also multidisciplinary or omnidisciplinary. Uh, it's science and math uh, are approached as liberal arts as well as the great books in a more recognizable sense. She is not like like Strauss. She is not as monomaniacally focused on political philosophy, uh, in part because of her her teaching. Uh, she needs to to read and teach widely, and of course Strauss and these other authors did as well, but her own version articulating liberal education, it needs to, to bring in all of these great works that are in dialogue uh, uh, with one another. Um, finally, an, a note about her as an institutional thinker, uh, she actually compares a college to a small republic. She says that Tocqueville thought that Republican citizenship relied in part on the vigor of civil associations, uh, the New England Township and so on. Well, where do we find those civil associations? She puts forward the small self-governing college as a kind of miniature republic in which um, its, its community members can find a genuine form, though diminished or, or modified form of citizenship. Uh, and so she, she thinks that somehow the living in and practice of responsibility for a small polity like a college community can be a kind of training ground for citizenship in the broader sense, just as Tocqueville identified uh, the New England Township as a school for, for Republican citizenship uh, in democracy in America. And I think that's, um, that this is one of the most interesting things about this, this book to me, not only as a, as a book to be read to understand Brand's thoughts, but as a paradigm for other, uh, other people in, in situations analogous to her own. Uh, what I mean is that Brand has here given a philosophical and historical exploration of the dilemmas of education, liberal education in, in our American context. And she has done so um, in a way that's deeply informed by her own college community to which she has been loyal and, and a member for, for decades now. I think that that kind of articulation 
of what one's own particular approach to education is, uh, where it came from, why you at your own institution of liberal education do what you do. I think that's a great way of giving a firmer foundation to and and helping define in its distinctiveness your own your own college or your own um, school within a school within a university uh, that that's approaching liberal education. I think it'd be very healthy for institutions of liberal education today to take a leaf out of Brand's book, or rather, to produce their own version of Brand's book that's distinctive to their to their own school, so that they're able to to do the one thing that they they do um, uh, in in a better way, uh, so that they're able to to say to themselves and to others, to explain to themselves and to others, uh, what is really distinctive about liberal education as they approach it. Um, we talk about the crisis of the humanities and, and all these great threats to the universities. And I think that Brand's institutional thinking and the way in which she's written this book for the sake of defining an institution is a great model for that today. Yeah, that's great. That reminds me of... Um... You know, one of the, the arguments of my uh, late, late great friend, Peter Lawler, he, he always emphasized kind of the wonders of the diversity of, of uh, American education and, you know, was always kind of fighting the, the seeming urge to, to conformity that, you know, all college mm-hmm. kind of have to do the, to the same thing. And he just, he just sort of loved the, the bizarre diversity of, of American <laughs> higher education and thought yeah. that should be cherished. So that, I think that that last point is, is uh, fits with with Peter's uh, vision. Um, well, Pavlos, this has been really great. I appreciate you coming on to the Enduring Interest podcast to talk about uh, Eva Brown's book, uh, Paradoxes of Education in a Republic. And, and I look forward to hopefully having you back on when we do our um, kind of end of the, uh, end of the unit uh, theme and put you in dialogue with some of the other uh, people I'll have on to discuss uh, some of the other thinkers we've, we've mentioned today. Thanks so much, Flag. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, And message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.